What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Now, Rob, this is a very big week for you. So I know you have a huge uh, magazine story on the Houston Rockets. It's going to be hitting the internet on Tuesday, I believe, and, and hitting uh, newsstands, I would guess, what usually Thursday or Friday around the country. Everyone needs to check this story out. And Rob, I actually thought... Um, you know, the, the best way to approach this, to, to kind of promote this story on your behalf, because I really enjoyed it, let's just do a dramatic reading, okay? I'll be Harden, you be Westbrook, <laughs> and we'll just go through the entire, like, 4,000-word story just going back and forth. What do you think? I think that's the way to do it. Let me get my Westbrook tone, you know, really set down. It's, it's got a particular cadence, but if you give me a week or so to practice, I think we can get this thing going. Now, by tone, do you mean facial expression, scowl? I mean, w- w- what's involved there? <laughs> Just a general indignance. Although I will say this about Russ, like his his demeanor with the media in Houston, I don't know what explains this, why this has been the case, but has been surprisingly cheery. Well, you know, he's starting to get into that late career mode where there it's like, go. I need to have more allies than enemies in the media. Hey, it's the, the Dwayne Wade approach, the Kobe Bryant approach. I completely understand it and respect it. And certainly you got a lot of good stuff from him. Uh, in all seriousness, I don't want to read your whole story, but the one thing that I really wanted to do, can we blow your lead? Can we just put it out to the open floor globe so they can get a little taste for what your story is? Because you just open it up with this fascinating scene film room players are having a conversation so walk me how did you get into that spot or how did you hear about that conversation and then just let's tell the open floor globe i mean what were these guys saying and what was the punchline that uh, had me cracking up so i mean the rockets win you know at the beginning of their season one of the first steps in terms of getting all the new players used to the way they play in houston is they want to give this presentation kind of showing the philosophy and the points of emphasis for Mike D'Antoni's offense in general, and then more specifically, what they want to change kind of going from last year to this year. So there's something to learn. Wait, so hold on. So this is like their HR training where they're basically (laughs) like, guys, we only shoot three-pointers and James gets to do everything. And by the way, no sexual harassment. I mean, is that sort of what we're talking about here? Exactly. Pass around the Kool-Aid. Everyone get fully indoctrinated into Rockets culture. This is what we're doing. And so, yeah, a lot of it is based off of based off of shooting and shot selection and things like that, making sure the spacing of the floor is right. Uh, and so there's a lot of data involved, a lot of showing, you know, this is where we ranked in terms of open three-pointers last year. This is, you know, where we need to rank in terms of, you know, to maintain that lead. This is how many mid-range shots we we took last year. And so that was part of it in terms of the Rockets not only are trying to edge out their mid-range attempts, obviously, that's kind of the principal tenet of Mori Ball, but they're also looking to take away some of those kind of like high paint attempts, some of those runners and floaters and things like that. And so their goal, you know, last season they had 4.2 mid-range shots in their entire shot profile, shot diet. And they're looking to either... Per make, game, you're saying. Per 4.2 game. per game. So exactly. that's an incredibly low number compared to the average team, right? There's probably players out there who have, you know, 4.2 mid-range shots by themselves, right? Exactly. Yeah, It was the number one, or I guess number 30, if you want to look at it that way, mark in the league in terms of the, the fewest number of mid-range attempts. And that was coming off a season previously in which they were already, you know, the lowest number. And they had to further reduce it to kind of keep up with the way the league is trending. And so they're showing these numbers on the screen. Uh, you know, this is kind of the marks you want to hit. This is what we want our offense to look like. We can't have, you know, 4.2 mid-range shots per game. It's about where we need to be or better. At which point Westbrook chimes in and basically calls Dib saying, those 4.2, those are going to be mine. And so obviously the Rockets, this is, I think this is a point of endearment for them in terms of him both staking his claim, making a relationship with his teammates, and also I think maybe poking fun at himself a little bit in terms of the player he's been and the player they need him to be. 
No, it was great. When I read it, I chuckled out loud because I could just see him in this meeting looking around and saying, wait a minute, like we only get four? What are you <laughs> talking about four for all of us? Uh, because that's been his bread and butter. That stop and pop, you know, pull up, uh, you know, elbow jumper has been something he's going to constantly. He often tries to attack the basket, doesn't necessarily always get there. And, and he will throw up some fairly wild stuff uh, if you want to call them runners or, or whatever else. Um, and that's the central philosophical tension with that trade, right? It's like, are you going to be able to pull Westbrook uh, into Mori Ball, or is Westbrook going to warp, uh, you know, the output, your, your shot profile that you've come to expect over the years? The numbers that you worked in there were amazing to me because this is a team. It's like they've been on a diet for like five years and just every year they get more and more locked in with the diet. Like they start a vegetarian then they went to vegan, right? And then they're going to like uh, the fasting. Uh, what, what's that called? Where you, you don't eat for like, you know, 10 hour stretches of the day or you don't eat after certain times. Uh, then they're banning all sweets from their diet. Then they're not having breakfast. Like they are so far down this rabbit hole that it really does require like a reorientation for new players to uh, understand how they want to play. So after reading this though, Rob, I got to say, you set it up brilliantly, um, both in the story and on the podcast here. But the real question is, is Westbrook joking? You know, <laughs> does he does he really buy in? Because four mid-range shots per game for the entire team, I mean, some of those are going to be coming in late clock situations where you don't have a choice, but you have to put it up. Uh, and in some situations, I know they're like benching guys if, if they're taking the right type of shot in, in previous seasons. Um, or, you know, they're almost like just phasing those types of guys out in terms of acquiring personnel. But with Westbrook, they've got him. It's going to be hard to get rid of him given his contract. They've really pitched this idea of Harden and Westbrook being buddy-buddy you know, really hard all summer long. Both those guys have done it themselves. They stood shoulder-to-shoulder in Japan uh, in the middle of the Daryl Morey-created, you know, fiasco with Hong Kong and China. So I guess there's a lot of sweat equity here is what I'm saying. And it kind of all hinges on whether Westbrook can buy in. Are you convinced he will? I mean, you've spent time with these guys. Is he going to be, you know, a Maury Ball soldier or not? You know, I think that tension that you're you're touching upon is exactly, you know, it's the central story of the Rockets season, right? It's not only these two guys' relationship between him and James, but how that influences the way they play on the court, how much Westbrook is willing to buy into this stuff or not. I think that, you know, Russ is a difficult guy to read because, it's not like these issues are new, right? Like he he's not all of a sudden a poor three-point shooter. He's generally been a poor three-point shooter. It's not like he's all of a sudden inefficient, although he's coming off of one of his more inefficient seasons. Like these are recurring issues that we're talking about. And, and you know, the fact that he doesn't cut or move off the ball that much. Like these, this is who Russell Westbrook is. And these issues have been raised in the past and not much changed. But he was also in a situation in Oklahoma City where I think everything about the team was tailored to an accommodating of him and who he wanted to be and what he wanted to do, especially after Kevin Durant left, and I think for understandable reason. And so you have a player like that and a person like that who, as has been written you know, by Lee Jenkins and so many other people over the years, a guy who's just kind of obsessed with routines, who is really a creature of habit in so many ways, you take him out of that one setting and you plop him into this other one, a completely new city, a completely new arena, new locker room, new teammates, 
some new routines have to result from that. And the Rockets are hoping some new habits as well. And so there is room within their offense, again, for someone to take some mid-range shots. Like Chris Paul obviously led the team in that regard last season. Chris Paul's a much better mid-range shooter than Russell Westbrook is. But if you're allowing, you know, you want to make allowances for the creators on the team, Paul and West, Paul and Harden previously, now Harden and Westbrook, to make those kinds of judgment calls, to take some of those opportunities for themselves if they're there, if it makes sense in terms of reading the defense and, and kind of what's available. So I do think his, you know, his mid-range diet to his credit, went down last season in Oklahoma City when he was deferring to Paul George, really trying to you know feature George within that offense. I think we'll see it go down even further this year. And the question beyond that is, can all the other stuff pan out? Can he be a competent, maybe corner three-point shooter? Can he move off the ball a little bit in the way that the Rockets might want? It's all those other little things. And of course, how that, you know, that pairing of him and, and Harden is going to measure up defensively against the Western Conference where there are so many good guards. Yeah, for better or worse, and often worse in the playoffs, Westbrook is one of the least compromising players in the league, and he was at an organization that had every reason to cater to his every whim, especially after Kevin Durant left, right? So uh, I think their season, the Rockets' season, really is going to be determined by whether this summer provided a moment of clarity, right? Did he take the right lessons from the playoff failure, from Paul George's desire to leave, to basically ask for a trade, force his way out. And then, you know, him being able to choose between, do I want to stay in Oklahoma City and be this martyr, or do I want to go to Houston and actually play for something real, right? And it's possible that after years and years and years of stubbornness and single-mindedness and doing things his way, that the light bulb did go off. Uh, He's starting to get to that point in his career. He's had multiple... Uh, surgeries and and injuries uh, over the course of his prime. Uh, He isn't the type of player you would necessarily expect to age great, you know, through his late 30s because he's so heavily reliant upon his athleticism because of the injury issues that I mentioned, because of the lack of three-point shooting that you mentioned, and because he's probably already, you know, a minus defender at this point in his career, that, you know, he could be uh, you know, starting to hear the uh, clock tick a little bit. And that could certainly play into Houston's favor, and it could certainly make him a more useful uh, number two guy. I guess I'm also curious, did you get the sense that he is sort of conceded at this stage of his career that Harden's the man and that he's number two? Because, you know, you quoted Mike D'Antoni talking about them both as MVP level guys. And yeah, I mean, technically that's true. Uh, but that's not how I view those two players at this current point of their careers. And I guess most people would not view Russell Westbrook as an MVP caliber player. Uh, So what do you think? Has he rationalized with himself this idea that he needs to take a step back on the uh, pecking order? I guess it depends on how you want to define it. But I do think in the very act of him coming to Houston, where he knows what James Harden means to that franchise. He's seen it firsthand. They've played against each other in the playoffs. Like there, there are no delusions here in terms of him coming in and like sweeping this team away from a guy who's his friend and again another great player who he chose to play with. And so I think that's the dynamic that's important. Where if Westbrook had just been traded away to a team that you know maybe he knew some people, maybe he didn't, maybe they were you know poised to be a, a contender and maybe they weren't. That would be you know a very different scenario. But when you're talking about him basically getting you know within a certain realm of teams and a certain pool of candidates to kind of pick the team he wanted to be on and the players he wanted to be with, I think that says a lot in terms of the respect he has for James and and what he's been able to do. And both of those guys have talked about you know, really understanding and identifying with that in each other. Like there really aren't that many people in the league 
who know what it means to carry a franchise in a, in a holistic sense for a long time. Some guys come in and will do it for a couple of years and then their games will fall off and they'll have to transition into something else. But I mean, you're really talking about the LeBrons and the Stephs and in this case, the Hardens and the Westbrooks in terms of guys who have really been that kind of basketball centerpiece, cultural centerpiece, you know, PR centerpiece. Like, I mean, everyone wants a piece of these guys and they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. I think the fact that they can respect that in each other and the experiences that they've had, and specifically that Westbrook knows kind of where Harden has been. These guys are guys who who talk often throughout you know this season and previous seasons. It's not like they've been out of touch. They he, they kind of know where each other is coming from. I think that puts them in, in a really healthy and productive place to start all of this. Now, whether that holds up over the course of the year when things get tricky and difficult, I guess we'll have to see. Uh, we will have to see. I will say I'm more skeptical of this partnership than I was of the Harden-Chris Paul partnership a couple of years ago. I think people raised questions about their personalities, um, about both of those guys needing the ball, both of those guys being number one options at that time. I was higher on that partnership than most people um, just because I thought Chris Paul cared so much about winning and had kind of hit that wall that he would be willing to adapt um, to, to take a step back to function as a number two guy and then to lead the offense when Harden was not on the court. Uh, you know, with Westbrook, I'm still hung up on this idea of is he going to be able to kind of get over himself? You know, is he going to be willing to uh, be off the ball, you know, just spotting up for long stretches of games because that's what Houston asks of a lot of its players. And at the center of your stories, Rob, always is the, is the sport and it's the strategy and it's the X's and O's. Uh, as you were talking to the coaching staff and, and the principal players and maybe even Daryl Morey, I mean, what are some of the kinds of things that they're doing to ease Westbrook into this offense, to kind of try to find a successful role for him? I think you mentioned maybe corner threes and off-ball movement, but exactly how is that going to look this year for people uh, who are maybe just, you know, picturing a my turn, your turn, very rigid, uh, you know, offensive flow between those two main stars? Well, I think sometimes it will look like that just because that's the shape that the Rockets offense kind of takes in general. You know, even, you know, take Chris Paul out of it. Last year was a lot of my turn, my turn with kind of James Harden just, you know, ISOing over and over and over or, you know, really running pick and roll. The opposing team switches and then he has to ISO or tries to ISO or tries to create one on one. So there will be times where it's just kind of them passing that baton back and forth. I think some of that is because the Rockets overall I mean, this was something that they brought up in that presentation that they give to all the players is that this is a team that moves less than any other team in the league in terms of their distance covered over the course of a game. And they also, at the same time, create more open threes than anyone. And so like that combination of factors, I think they take a lot of pride in the idea that we're not just churning just to churn. Like we are, we have great creators, guys like James, previously Chris, now and Russ. We're going to rely on them. We're going to work through them. We're going to run good, smart action. It's not like they're just kind of running basic pick and roll every time. There's a lot of good kind of setup and pre, you know, preemptive and premeditated stuff to kind of get players in the right positions and get opponents off balance and things like that. They want to do those things so that they can put you in an impossible bind as a defense. They want you to have to cheat off the corners. They want you to leave Clint Capella and Tyson Chandler. They're going to do all those things. And so like the offense is not going to look fundamentally very different, but to your point, I think part of the reason why the situation with Chris was much more easier to buy into from the outside looking in is just like their games are a much cleaner fit than Harden and Westbrook's are. This is going to be more complicated. It's going to be more difficult. But, you know, if if Westbrook can be even a decent standstill shooter 
or if he can attack off the dribble a little bit more if they're cheating away from him, you know, make that quick catch, make a quick move. That's a hard thing to stop too. I think there are a lot of ways in which Westbrook and Harden can play off each other. Houston probably more than than most teams runs a lot of kind of one-two screening action. So Harden and Westbrook will be screening for a lot just as, as a result of the sets that they run. So there's things like that that I think can can work into this, but inevitably those guys are going to kind of be taking turns within this, both when they're on the court together and then of course in staggering them as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the spacing element for Westbrook is huge. I do think that some of the things that we blame him for, the inefficiency, poor finishing in traffic uh, at times, uh, you know, high turnover volume. I mean, some of those things were a product of his environment in Oklahoma City where they just didn't have enough shooters every time he's going into the paint. He's seeing lots and lots of bodies. And as we know with the Rockets, that's just not how it works. I mean, you're going to have a lot of room to work. Um, And I do think that having a player like Clint Capella who can play you know, a similar cleanup role uh, like a Steven Adams did in Oklahoma City uh, is going to wind up, uh, you know, helping cover at least to some degree for, you know, some of, you know, Westbrook's maybe shortcomings, uh, you know, once he gets into traffic, but he should have a lot more room to work. I would expect him to finish a lot better um, or at least, you know, meaningfully better uh, this year than maybe he did these last couple of seasons. Um, I think my biggest concern is, you know, the kind of knock that most people have had on the Rockets for years, which is, okay, what does it really look like in the playoffs? Because there was moments where the Harden and Chris Paul dynamic was just absolutely sensational, especially during the regular season. But there was also certain playoff matchups where, I mean, they're just absolutely roasting and kind of embarrassing a guy like Rudy Gobert, who to me, uh, you know, is, is very, very highly ranked on my upcoming top 100 list. I have a lot of respect for that guy, but he didn't stand a chance you know, multiple times in the postseason. I'm wondering, are they going to be able to reach that level with this group, right, with these two guys? I mean, does Westbrook have um, the control, the composure, um, you know, the the ability to orchestrate in a postseason format? Because the last couple of playoffs, I think he's deserved all the criticism that he's gotten for, you know, the overall impact of his play. And I also think that when the pressure rises on him, his response is to sort of, you know, meet force with force to just crank up his own energy and to, you know, wind up in a lot of cases sort of being his own worst enemy. And that's not what Houston needed. You know, when I was watching them lose games five and six to Golden State, I know you were down there in in Houston for the last one. Was there any point during that second half where you were like, you know what these guys need? Russell Westbrook running around (laughs) in circles, end to end, throwing up crazy three pointers that he's not going to make. Like, was that on your mind? Because it certainly wasn't on mine. It wasn't per se. And I, I mean, two things I will say that, that kind of need to factor in this conversation in terms of when Houston kind of stepped back after the way last season ended and, and, you know, they were trying to take stock of where they were and what they needed. Two things I think came up in terms of whether it was just changes in the way they wanted to play or some of the personnel they were targeting. For one, they wanted to get a lot more athletic if possible. And some of that was going to happen on the margins. It's, you know, getting a guy like Ben McLemore, for example, or you know, bringing back Gerald Green, making sure that at least if guys get the ball, these are these are players who can make quick dynamic moves who aren't going to get kind of stuck in the mud in a difficult series like that one against the Warriors. And the other thing is they really want to ramp up the pace incrementally. They don't want to be necessarily like the fastest team in the league. 
but they were leaving too many points on the board in terms of this was a really efficient team early in the shot clock last year. But James Harden was a guy who was kind of, you know, walking the ball up the floor at times, maybe, you know, deservingly considering he needs to kind of take a breather in between ISOs. And Chris Paul, who's, you know, definitely one of the more methodical point guards in the league. And so when you t- when you put Russell in there, it definitely accelerates things. It changes kind of the nature of how you defend the Rockets and what you have to do to kind of guard against that pace, guard against the fast breaks in a different way. So I think they do want and need those things. And it's part of the reason why, even though we're not watching them play the Warriors and think, oh, what this series really needs is Russell Westbrook, we may be thinking, you know what, this Rockets team looks a little bit stagnant. They look a little bit stale in terms of the way the offense is moving and what they need. What if they got into those possessions four seconds earlier because Russell's tearing down the floor in transition and they're hitting ahead? And between, you know, him and Harden and Eric Gordon and Austin Rivers, you know, four four pretty dynamic ball handlers as far as depth goes. You know, can they get a couple easier shots a game, a couple, you know, cleaner looks in transition or on the secondary break? I think even things like that will will go a long way with them. And it it kind of, if you're going to make an optimistic case for the Rockets, the idea of them getting into some of that early, easier offense is is certainly a part of that formula. No, I'll be honest, man. I am not sold. I think I've got (laughs) PTSD. I don't know if it's playoff thunder stress disorder or what's happening, but uh, this idea of Russell Westbrook getting them into offense more quickly and, hey, he's going to be the. Uh, the catalyst for you know greater movement and stuff. It just freaks me out. You know, I, I just bottom line, I don't trust him. Uh, I I would hope for the best for his partnership with James. I think that you know some of this stuff in terms of the chemistry that's innate. It goes back to childhood. You know, you can't just replicate that randomly like between uh, a James Harden and Chris Paul. I do think that's a benefit. Um, but the basketball questions are just weighing really really heavily on me, and I just think. Um, these last couple of years, to me, James has needed more help in the postseason. He's needed people that he can trust, and I just don't know if, if Westbrook's that guy. Uh, gun to your head, do you view the Rockets as legit title contenders as constructed with this current roster? Do you think they can win the 2020 title? I do view them as a contender, but I think a lot of that is because I kind of already did. You know, whether Chris Paul was there or Russell Westbrook is there, I think the the broader architecture is a contending team. This is a team that was, you know, very close to to getting to the finals and potentially winning two years ago that had a hard-fought series against the Warriors last year that kind of got away from them. And, you know, we can dig into that if you want, but even they really don't know how exactly that happened. I think they, they're a team that's been on the brink in a lot of ways. And if you swap out Paul for Westbrook, does it make them a dramatically better team? Probably not. I think they're kind of in the same range they were. Maybe they're a little different. They're a little you know, harder to guard in some ways, easier to guard in other ways. Defensively, they have questions. I think, I think you're right to be skeptical, and that's part of the reason why they're one of the most interesting teams of the season to me. Because we're you know, going into opening night, when, when the games start mattering for real, away from this preseason stuff, what is this going to look like? What is it going to look look like in November and in January and in March when you know they're kind of fine-tuning these things or maybe guys are grading on each other or certain role players are, are having a hard time kind of getting their beat on what they should be doing or how they should be contributing or they're frustrated or maybe they're really happy with how everything is. But I think few teams have you know this such a, such a huge question mark as how do we take two of the highest usage players in the league and smash them together? into what was already one of the most efficient offenses of all time, and what does that look like? 
I think the Rockets were, were very clear when I went down there that even they don't know how some of this stuff is going to work. Even they can't, you know, they don't know if Russell Westbrook is going to shoot, you know, 29% from three or, or 33% from three or 35% from three next season. Like they're, they're going to kind of go into this with an open mind and try to feel things out. Mike D'Antoni is that kind of coach. James Harden has been very clear that this is going to be a process in terms of game by game, figuring out what they can do. I think that kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier about the way that they played against, you know, Rudy Gobert and the Jazz and like that specific match. Matchup. It's when we go into a specific matchup, what weapons do we have? We don't have kind of the mid-range Chris Paul stuff anymore, but maybe we have this other thing. Maybe we have these other elements of, of Westbrook's game that we can put to use. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Yeah, Rob, here's what I worry about too, though, because remember those Clippers teams on paper like three, four, five years ago, those Lob City Clipper teams, every year they came in, we're, we're thinking they're title contenders. One year, didn't they run off like a 15 and one start, something like that? And I'm saying, hey, these guys are finally ready to try to, you know, go head to head and take down Golden State. My concern is that those teams got caught up in all the other stuff, right? They got side sidetracked, uh, distracted, whatever phrases you want to use, Um whether it's personalities, uh, whether it's just the fact that, you know, if you lose together a couple times and you don't really have a clear explanation for it, you never can kind of uh, exploit what's happening. Um, you know, that kind of stuff just like stays, you know, beneath the surface and just kind of it's waiting to bubble over. And I do wonder if this Rockets team is kind of at that point because the main core guys have been through this a couple of times. Certainly Golden State uh, is weakened and that has been their biggest hurdle. Uh, but I also look at, everything that's happened this summer from the owner revealing himself to be kind of a live wire to put it politely the d'antoni contract negotiations not being resolved daryl morey sparking a gigantic international incident that could hang over his franchise for the entire season the offensive questions that we're talking about um, with russell westbrook and the fact that you know the rockets slowly but surely did acknowledge that Harden and Chris Paul's personalities just that was the issue that was what was driving uh, the tension last season and then also defensively this idea that if you're playing crunch time defense and you need to have Westbrook and Harden on the court uh, that's a little bit you know nerve-wracking as well that's just a lot of questions and there's so many big personalities here there is pent-up frustration from past seasons I just wonder if, uh, you know, if they're really built for the long haul. And so to me, I do not consider them to be like the top shelf title contenders uh, in that category this season. I know that most analysts do. Um, I realize that I'm not really making this argument necessarily based on analytics or logic. It's more kind of touchy feely stuff. Um, and I, there is absolutely a scenario where James Harden finally has the breakthrough, puts everyone on his back and he plays as well as I've said he he can play. 
uh, you know, for an entire postseason run and they do it. Uh, I'm just betting against it. And I don't love it uh, as somebody who's kind of had their back here these last couple of years, but I'm betting against it. Hey, we got a question from Thaddeus, and it was a really long takedown, to be honest, of Tillman Fertitta. And you know, he was really nitpicking at various aspects of Fertitta, making fun of the fact that he wrote a book that's called Shut Up and Listen, uh, making fun of him for not wanting to spend into the luxury tax, uh, making fun of him for essentially, I guess in his words, he might be in a tough three-way battle with James Dolan, Robert Sarver for the worst NBA owner. And I think he might actually be the least self-aware owner somehow. That sounds impossible, but it's true. He goes on to say, uh, Fertitta has already surpassed the bus kids as being a garbage owner because at least they have Los Angeles. He's passed Michael Jordan because at least Michael Jordan is still cool. There's a 100% chance that Fertitta hangs out with Dolan and Sarver at owners meetings and they think they're on their own a lot because the other owners are intimidated by them. I realize hypocrites lacking self-awareness who may not be great people are a dime a dozen in the billionaire class. But I think this guy is in the top percentile of that breed. So, Thaddeus, I mean, tell us how you really <laughs> feel. Um, but is that a variable in your eyes? Like, I think that's a, a growing narrative, right? It's like this is sort of an unstable franchise that maybe was more stable under the previous ownership regime that walked into this crazy China scandal um, that revealed very quickly that you know, Tillman Fertitta and Daryl Morey were not necessarily going to be on lockstep on every single issue, and that Fertitta's initial attempt to play it down was basically completely brushed off by everyone in the world and just kind of made him look bad. It wasn't necessarily what, what you would expect from a savvy, experienced uh, NBA owner necessarily. So, I mean, put aside some of like, you know, the personal attacks from Thaddeus onto uh, Fertitta, but just... I mean, what was your impression of the Rockets' stability, as it were, when you went down there? Well, I mean, it's no secret that ownership in general is the biggest market inefficiency in the league. Teams that have good, stable owners, that have owners who are either involved enough to know how to contribute or who are self-aware enough to kind of step out and let, you know, their team presidents or their general managers, their coaches kind of do their jobs. That's incredibly important. And, and walking that balance can be tricky for a lot of these guys because, as Thaddeus was saying, it's like self-awareness is not necessarily what gets you to being a billionaire. With the Rocket situation specifically, I mean, I think where it comes into play is with the luxury tax. And I mean, my problem is more one of messaging where it's, you can't be, like, you can't come in to a situation as a team owner saying you're willing to spend whatever it takes and then put your team in a, in a situation where they're like counting 10-day contracts to make sure they don't edge too close to the luxury tax line. Like, those two things cannot happen. And you can be you can be forthright in saying, we're willing to spend within limits. We're willing to spend for the right kinds of players. Like, there are ways to message this other than just, like, you know, pure braggadocio. And yet, I know, I again, I, I realize how ridiculous it is expecting billionaires to come in with any, you know, modicum of modesty with this kind of stuff. But, like, be consistent with what you're telling your team internally, what you're telling the public externally, and what you're actually willing to do, at least as far as that stuff goes. The whole thing with, the you know, the, the ordeal in China, I think, is kind of a whole separate issue in terms of, you know, the way that Tillman Fertitta decided to deal with that. I think what stuck in my craw most was just, like, he made this big show of saying that the Rockets were not a political organization. Obviously, that's been, you know, dissected in detail by outlets like Deadspin in terms of, you know, listing all of the ways in which he has made political 
political statements or taken political stances in the past. But not only that, I mean, owning, running, running and owning a business is a political act. Being a billionaire is a political act. Playing for, you know, running a team that plays in a building that's publicly funded is a political act because everything is politics. It's like we can't pretend, you know, you can, you can try to shy away from the China and Hong Kong stuff as much as you want, but saying that like we are inherently not a polit- political organization, I just don't buy on any level. Yeah, it didn't seem like very many people were buying it. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the problem. And I think that's some of the lack of self-awareness uh, maybe that Thaddeus was trying to point to. is like, you know, this guy is just sort of used to yelling and screaming and having it go his way. And I don't think that's necessarily the reality of the best NBA ownership. And, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of wondering, you know, I'm questioning every relationship in the Rockets right now. Last episode, I was wondering how Harden feels about Daryl Morey. And I'm also curious how the Rockets players feel about their owner grandstanding, uh, you know, in the tunnel after they lost the Golden State Warriors saying, oh, this will never happen again. And, you know, and trying to, you know, come out with this huge bravado and, and almost making them look bad to a degree. That would bother me. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily have him number one on my list of guys that I would necess- want to play for. And I realize that's not always the biggest factor uh, when these guys are making their career decisions. But I do think, like you mentioned, ownership influence is winning. Steady ownership is better than uh, volatile ownership. And I, I'm not really sure what a Fertitta defender at this point would really hang their hat on. You know, I think they would just try to change the subject and say, hey, James is still awesome. He's going to be an MVP candidate. Like, I think that sort of uh, raucous defenders would want to take the shine off of ownership as much as possible. Hey, Rob, thanks so much for diving deep into that story. I encourage everybody out there in the Open Floor Globe to check it out online on SI.com. Uh, and also in SI, the magazine. It's a great piece. You will not be disappointed. There's plenty more goodies that we didn't touch on uh, in that piece. So be sure to check it out. Rob, speaking of the Open Floor Globe, though, man, we got some amazing questions this week uh, from all over the world, which I always love when we get uh, the international listeners weighing in. You guys can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And the first question is from Jeff, and he's actually hitting a little bit closer to home, Rob. He says, California has an unbelievable amount of talent. Which 12-man roster would you assemble from the four teams in California? And can you assemble a roster from the remaining 26 teams that you would actually favor to beat the California team? Now, Rob, not that long ago, I said there's more basketball talent within a five-mile radius of my apartment than there is from Maine to Miami. That was not hyperbole. (laughs) That's a fact. Uh, I got to see Kawhi Leonard play the preseason a, a few days ago. Uh, awesome experience to kind of see his first time in, in a Clippers jersey here in LA. Uh, the Lakers, I believe, are resting their stars tonight, but they're going to be playing at Staples Center uh, this week. And guys like Steph Curry and Draymond Green are going to be on the court. So there is no question California is where the, the center of the basketball universe is. And part of the reason, Rob, is because you moved to California not that long ago. I think after being a Texas guy for most of your life. Uh, so I'm curious. I mean, are you wearing shorts in public? now you know are you saying things like hella and bruh and and, and things like that i mean how much has your california uh, migration rubbed off on your personality you know i don't think i'm in quite that deep yet but there's time for me yet you know i think we're we're still kind of growing into our new our new setting in a lot of ways becoming full-time californians it's it really is a process though i mean it it's a hard thing to jump in head first 
So you haven't scheduled the plastic surgery yet, or you're still looking for the surgeon? Or <laughs> I mean, you really got to vet those guys extensively. You know, you don't you don't want to <laughs> nip and tuck in the wrong place. No, all serious though. Though, like, are you are you liking California? I think you live in Northern California, not too far away from the uh, you know Chase Center, the Golden State Warriors. Um, you know, new home. You have any Cali takes? Because I moved down to L.A. like you know five years ago. Now it feels like it's been two months uh, because I just the pace of life and the pace of the season here is just feels like it's so accelerated. But uh, I need your impressions as a as an immigrant. <laughs> the the Bay Area in particular has been really interesting. You know, I think it's it's one of these places that's like it's so aggressively nice to live here in terms of climate and you know amenities and culture that you know that obviously raises the price on everything and it just becomes impossible for anyone to actually live here. And yet at the same time, I think what I've taken away from it most is just in interacting with this Bay Area world. There's just this like veneer of people pretending to be incredibly chill when deep down there's just this like constant bubbling anxiety in every single person that you meet. It's, it's a really <laughs> strange dynamic. I, I don't quite know how to wrap my, my arms around it yet, but everyone is just a ball of nerves up here, man. Well, so the first thing that you need to realize after moving to California is that it's incredible, but you're not supposed to tell everyone else because then it does get more expensive. Mm, so especially if you're talking to New Yorkers, you have to play the whole thing of like, oh, I don't know if you'd like it. <laughs> the traffic is so rough. Everything's so spread out. There's not really a lot of public transportation. The weather is definitely overrated. Like it's definitely not 72 and sunny right now. Like you have to play all that stuff down and really try to use the reverse psychology. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you're settling it up there. Uh, and I think, you know, like I said, I mean, you're on the best coast. I mean, we call it the uh, Sunrise Conference for a reason. All the real talents out here. Um, and to get to Jeff's question, I built my – actually, I made a 13-man team to conform with NBA roster. Okay, <laughs> Tell me what you think. My starters, my California starters, Steph Curry, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, Anthony Davis. I think that's – unimpeachable i mean that is a squad right uh you're talking about five top 10 players just right off the top my bench has De'Aaron fox draymond green d'angelo russell i'm taking clay thompson under the assumption he's going to be healthy montrez harrell lou williams patrick beverly and then i'm bringing in kavon looney uh just for matchup purposes i wanted to have a traditional center i think ad draymond and montrez are all really good options at center but if you've got a matchup with you know, the rest of the world team, you know, Cali versus the world, you're dealing with guys like Jokic or Embiid, um, you know, even Rudy Gobert, you want to have at least one traditional center. So I, I snuck Looney on there. Amazingly, I left off some really good players, Danny Green, Marvin Bagley, Kyle Kuzma, Jared Dudley, JaVale McGee, whoever, whoever else you want to include in that, uh, you know, extended roster conversation. What does your roster look like? Did I miss anybody? Well, here's my question. How do we want to deal with long-term injuries with stuff like this? Like, is for the non-California well, team... Well, look, this is very, very important, okay? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is arguably a new chapter of the Bible. Yep. So you need to just take it as incredibly seriously. Like, I honestly think that Jeff, his life hangs on your answer here. <laughs> well, I'm going to choose to just include anyone who's on the roster of a California team, in which case I'm going to sneak DeMarcus Cousins in there. 
Oh, okay, okay. I see where you're going. Because I think, um, obviously, the California side, if we're looking at California teams and their collective 12 or 13 versus the rest of the league, like size becomes a huge problem, and it's already kind of a problem for some of these teams individually. And so rather than the Kavon Looney or, you know, if you want to dig into, like, the Marvin Bagley's of the world or however you want to get your size on the court, I'm going to go with this, like, giant dude who can at least kind of bully and, and, and you know, hang with some of these bigger centers coming from the rest of the teams. Yeah, and you also just want the star power. I mean, you're trying to intimidate other teams off the court, and I think this brings up a great issue, which is California secession. I mean, oh, yeah. should California and arguably Oregon and Washington with California, you could call the country Pacifica, should they secede from the union? Now, I know you're from Texas, so you have a little bit of history with these kinds of movements down there, constantly wanting to create your own country. It's true. But if we took California and put it into like the 2020 Olympics, that squad wins gold that we're describing, right? I mean, even if you throw Cousins on there and he's just there for uh, intimidation purposes, like I don't, who's beating them? No, it's, I I think the way I was kind of conceptualizing it is this is kind of the team post the big one. Like when the earthquake eventually comes and California drifts into the (laughs) sea and becomes its own country, that this this is going to be the intra-league that we have, California versus the rest of the United States. So it's the San Andreas All-Stars is basically what you're calling this? Absolutely. The San Andreas Separatists. Let's go print up the jerseys. Um, Boy, we are alienating 49 other states right now. (laughs) So great. Hey, um, I actually did go about creating a team for... The rest of America, okay? Here's the squad I came up with. Lillard, James Harden, Jimmy Butler, Giannis, and Jokic as my starters. You can have Embiid as a starter. I'm fine with that. Uh, Embiid on the bench, Westbrook on the bench, Carl Anthony Towns, Blake Griffin, Bradley Beal, Kyrie Irving, Rudy Gobert. So I think if you were in a situation where you mandated that every player, all 13 guys, had to play an equivalent amount of time, I think you can make an argument that the rest of the USA team that I just described could potentially beat the California team. But I think if we're playing with typical like eight-man rotations, lean heavily on your superstars, I just think the fit factor and the top-end talent factor for California wins out. What do you think? I just love that the matchup is so weird that like all of the bigs ended up on one team and like all the guards kind of end up on the other team or at least like undersized centers and, and like big long forwards. It's just like it, it would be such a fun game to watch. I think, or for one, I mean, if, if I'm going to sneak in Cousins on the other side, that means I get to kind of Trojan horse Kevin Durant into this side as well. Oh. And especially, I mean, how are you going to guard LeBron and Kawhi and Paul George? Like, you need, like that's where I think the rest of the, the league has a real deficit is like those big long wings like unless you want to get chris middleton into this mix or something which he seems a little miscast in like an all-world all-star game type situation but i think he yeah, well, I, look he didn't even hold up in the fiba world cup that's true. he's trying to go against <laughs> poland and turkey i mean he's not going to be able to hang with cali uh but one guy i think who deserves a place in this conversation so i did not have rudy gobert on my team just because between Jokic and Embiid and towns like you already have three super dynamic centers who are going to be kind of demanding time and needing time and maybe you can play them a little maybe like towns could play with one of the other guys a little bit together if you wanted to but are kind of in their separate beats i don't want to overload on center too much but i think the guy that the rest of the world team could really use especially if you're looking at a a backcourt of like lillard and harden or kyrie irving or russell westbrook is like you want a guard stopper you want somebody who can who can really check a steph curry who could check a clay thompson or d'angelo russell or De'Aaron fox or maybe even slide over to a paul george that's why i'm tabbing drew holiday for this team just on like that specialist need kind of role 
Yeah, and the best part is like half of the players, including Drew Holiday, uh, on this rest of the world roster are actually from California, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like, like they would probably apply for citizenship and passports for the team California team, sort of like you know guys try to get dual citizenships so they could play for different countries. Um, as soon as they hear the team California is forming. I think guys like Westbrook, Harden, and Drew Holiday are on the first plane home. You know what I mean? They're just chartering a flight, and uh, they're bailing. So anyway, enough California elitism. Great question from Jeff. Um, It is, I think, a reminder to all the listeners out there. If you're on the East Coast, I mean, you're staying up late this year, or you're taping games, you're catching up on the replays this morning. Uh, That 7.30 time slot between the Clippers, Lakers, Warriors, which are all just utterly fascinating teams. And then the Kings, who I think are going to be very, very watchable. I've enjoyed watching the Kings games the last couple of years. Uh, I mean, they're going to be, I think, league past Starlings this year too. So, uh, you know, don't forget about them when you're constructing your own, you know, watch schedules. All right. We have a question from Johnny. And uh, I think Johnny actually might be one of those autofill search engine bots because he realized that if he put in Zion and Giannis into the same question, there was a 175% chance I was going to read it. He writes, the whole of the NBA is caught up in Zion fever and rightfully so. Every day on Twitter, there is a new Zion highlight. The most recent one being a simple three-point shot. Hey, it was a, it was a nice shot though, Johnny, come on. Zion seems to be working on his jumper, but people are quick to forget another freakishly athletic man over in Milwaukee who was also working on his jumper. So who is it most important for then to work on creating a quality jumper, Zion or Giannis? And what do we think of a current Zion versus Giannis matchup? What would that look like? So Rob, who needs the jumper more? Um, And what do you think, Zion versus Giannis? Like are our brains prepared for that possible matchup quite yet or not well i mean not to be dismissive but isn't it more important for Giannis just because the bucks are are playing for stuff like they're playing for more this season i think things like you know can this incredible athlete who's going to produce in all these kind of dynamic ways can he shoot a jumper is really kind of only a problem if you're talking about a team that's going to the second round of the playoffs and beyond Yeah, there's no question. I think for Giannis, he's just deeper into his development. He's conquered so many other areas that, you know, we've nitpicked over the years of things that we wish he would kind of fill out with his game. Um, You know, as Giannis Inc., like we're looking at a whiteboard and there's one thing left on the whiteboard and it says jump shot. And if he gets the jump shot, then he wins the title, right? I mean, isn't that sort of how this is going to play out? I, I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit too optimistic, but to me, that's kind of how it boils down. I mean, if it's not a championship in 2020, then it's certainly like assumed world domination for the next five years if he gets that jump shot. So, um, you know, I I do think it's more important for him just because the stakes are higher, right? But if we're saying long-term, you know, how much success can Zion have if he just doesn't have a shot? Uh, I'm not sure that's quite the right way to frame it because I think that already his shooting mechanics are a little bit more natural than Giannis is right like I mean Giannis was really starting from zero when he got to the NBA with his shot and you could argue that three years in he was still pretty darn close to zero I don't think Zion's starting that low now do I trust him to create and take a three-pointer with the game on the line no uh you know not at all and I do think that uh, he doesn't trust himself I mean we saw that in the NCAA tournament you know late game situation he's looking to feed the ball to RJ Barrett he's not you know trying to do what most elite superstar level guys would do, which is take their guy one-on-one and get the best shot that they can get. So 
of course, it's a, an area of development that Zion needs to work on. But I'm just going to continue to hammer this drum as much as possible. Don't worry about Zion scoring or his three-point shooting in year one. Just relax and enjoy it, okay? This guy's got a body type unlike anything we've seen in the modern era. He does put together highlights on a night-to-night basis. If you're stressing about Zion, you are doing life wrong, Johnny, period, okay? Just enjoy the experience. Although while we're on the subject, Ben, I mean, what is the situation in terms of the Giannis Inc. board? Like, can I get a seat on it as somebody who just named Giannis the best player in the league this season for our top 100, someone who voted Giannis for MVP? What do I have to do wait, to kind of... Wait, 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 wait. This sounds an awful lot like a Ukrainian scandal. <laughs> are you are you trying to propose a quid pro quo whereby you're going to have a hostile takeover of a Giannis board seat in exchange for the number one rating on SI's top 100. That is one of the shadiest things I've ever said. (laughs) I'm about to text you to just say, call me, okay? Because that, this is why people get impeached. I mean, I'm not even kidding, Rob. That's dastardly behavior. Doing this on air was probably not my best choice. (laughs) <laughs> um you're in okay come on it's we, everybody's in we're a big happy family and i think Giannis is headed for a big season also by the way you named him your uh, mvp pick didn't you absolutely okay so was that a real pick or more buttering up i mean what's your angle here oh i'm just an investor trying to get in on the board let's be real all right a couple years late that's all right we got a couple emails here, and you know, frankly, I'm just going to gas you up, okay? Yago says, Rob is such a smooth, perfectly succinct, articulate cat. Ben, you have found your match. Yago, very, very nice thing for you to say to, to welcome uh, a Rob before his impending impeachment. <laughs> uh, David from England, he, he has a question. He writes, I just want to start this email by saying how good of a job Rob has done. And then he says, the past couple of podcasts, you've discussed who could be runner-up to Zion in the Rookie of the Year race. You've brought up John Moran, R.J. Barrett, Michael Porter Jr., and you mentioned how Michael Porter Jr. could have a Brogdon-like effect by playing on a winning team. Uh, I'm curious, what do you think about uh, Matisse Teibel uh, for the 76ers? In the preseason game so far, he's uh, appeared to be able to contribute straight away, and you could maybe throw him into that same Michael Porter Jr. conversation uh, he's a an impact defensive player. The Sixers should be a top two seed, win lots of games. I know it's only preseason, and one of the games he played was against a Chinese team, uh, but Elton Brand appears to have found another really good player in the 20s. So I guess his argument is uh, he'll, you know, Tybal will have a clear role. Uh, he'll be an impact guy, might not have major stats, but he's playing on a winning team. Is that enough to get him into this uh, rookie of the year conversation for you, Rob, or is this uh, just an English Sixers fan drinking a little bit too much tea? Well, first of all, let me just say thanks to both of those guys for being so welcoming and, and saying such nice things about our first few pods here, Ben. Uh, but I do think that this is probably, you know, this is a long shot case. Michael Porter Jr. was already a long shot case. I do love the idea of, again, a Malcolm Brogdon-esque candidacy for some of these guys. But for Matisse Thibel, like... I love him in the role there. I love what, you know, his potential for the Sixers. They desperately need a player like him, especially when you're talking about their depth or lack thereof. And I think that's where maybe he has an edge on the Michael Porters of the world in that he has something that working in his favor that Porter does it, which is just this clear road to an impact role, you know, right? Unless you're a huge, like, James Ennis diehard, I don't think there's anyone really standing in the way of Matisse Thibel, like, becoming a relevant part of the Sixers this year. But in order to win Rookie of the Year or really be talked about in that way, you probably need to be more than just, like, a relevant piece of a really good team. 
No, it's well said, David. I think I would lower your expectations. Try to campaign for him to get a spot on one of the all-rookie teams. I think that's a reasonable ask, a reasonable request. Realize that rookie of the year race is going to be dominated by the guys who are putting up the big points per game averages um, and who are, you know, shouldering, you know, lead playmaking type roles for their organization. And, you know, clearly that's not going to be what Philly wants from him. Um, His point about a a nice find from Elton Brand, uh, I do think that's, you know, worth underlining. I was pretty hard on Brand for his trade deadline last year. I think he got worked uh, pretty good, but I think in general, his salvage effort this summer, and you can include the draft in that, has been pretty good work. Now, the Clippers can't stop raving about Landry Shaman, you know, and so that's one that could kind of ha- uh, hang over Brand's head. It's possible, though, that if Thibel is able to give them quality minutes uh, and, you know, fit in from a philosophical standpoint defensively how they want to play, that could mute some of the blowback uh, that they're going to be getting over the whole Shamit part of the uh, the Tobias Harris trade. Uh, but I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. All right. Uh, another question here from Peter, who, as I mentioned last episode, has turned into an MVP emailer. He writes, the new lottery odds are steroids for Western Conference dominance. I've long felt that Western Conference dominance uh, was powered from their depth. Western lottery teams are often superior in talent than Eastern playoff teams, but because of lottery rules and confidence imbalance, conference imbalance, they are getting higher draft picks than Eastern teams. This creates the next generation of Western contenders. The new lottery odds accelerate this, with high picks going to Western teams that likely would have made the Eastern playoffs. I predict that conference imbalance will continue to grow with the new lottery odds as some very talented young Western teams will be in the lottery this season. So, Rob, I mean, everybody knows how I feel on this issue. I do think they should just take the top 16 teams into the playoffs and maybe help, um, you know, mitigate, you know, some of these issues and, you know, put the really bad Eastern Conference teams in position to get some of these lottery talents that that, uh, they're currently missing out on. But I think my big takeaway from this point is he's right. There are some young up-and-coming teams in the Western Conference that are probably going to miss the playoffs that are like scary to think about three years down the road. You know, I'd circle Dallas. I'd circle New Orleans. Uh, I'm not sure Sacramento is quite scary, but they could be very interesting. Uh, you know, a team like Minnesota, if they could figure it out, they have a really, really good franchise player in Carl Towns. They could be interesting three years down the road. I'd even say Memphis could be really fun and really interesting three years down the road. And when I compare that pack of teams I just described to the dregs of the Eastern Conference currently, you know, whether it's Charlotte, uh, even Cleveland, the Washington Wizards, the New York Knicks, I see a really big gap there. What do you think? I think so. And we've, we've gone so long now with the West as kind of the more broadly superior conference that I think all the explanations people have come up with have already kind of fallen away, other than like maybe people just like West Coast cities better in terms of free agent movement or things like that. But I'm kind of beyond understanding how this happens. I just will accept whatever theory or variable you want to put forward in terms of like why the West is better. I'm just willing to buy it. Uh, I, I don't, the sun will never set on the Western Conference empire, I don't think. <laughs> wow, I love it. Um, which of those teams that I mentioned, uh, the rising Western powers, do you think is best positioned to really become that contending team, say, you know, three years down the road? Like, I know you've got a lot of ties in Dallas. I, are you starting to think, you know, okay, 2023, 
I'm moving back from California to Texas, you know, triumphant return to follow the Luka Doncic wins his first title story. Or is there another team from that group uh, that, that you think has a better shot? I mean, I think Dallas is positioned pretty well, but they have the issue where they have obviously these these top two guys who are just great, uh, you know, Chris Tapp's health permitting, and, you know, hopefully he's able to have a, a long and healthy career there. But in terms of the other guys on their team, they're kind of missing some of the connective tissue. I think, you know, from, from three on down, guys are just like miscast a little bit in terms of are being asked to do just by the nature of their roles and where they are in the pecking order a little bit too much. And so if they can get a good third or fourth guy that can kind of shift everyone else down a little bit, they could start to get really, really interesting. And so I think they're in that conversation for, for sure. And then New Orleans, just by virtue of having Zion and also, you know, a really good cast of veterans and then some other young upside guys, in, you know, between Lonzo and Ingram, uh, you know, Josh Hart, who either can blossom there or who could be traded off for other players, you know, depending on what the situation demands. I think those are the two teams that, that are kind of at the top of that category. Yeah, and with New Orleans, they've got the the extra the assets too, you know. So mm-hmm. like they've got a lot of flexibility as they kind of go forward. I don't know about you, they're already appointment television to me. I've been watching every single one of their preseason games. Um, I didn't necessarily plan on it, but as soon as I start to see the tweets coming through about Zion, it's like, all right, well, I don't have a life anyways, so let's just put this on. <laughs> this is going to be great, and they never disappoint. They're always fun to watch. Um, and I'm sure lots of people are getting text messages from me about random Pelicans preseason games thinking this guy's lost his mind. Um, but, you know, they're, they're certainly, uh, you know, uh, off in the right direction. Um, Rob, I want to close with one pretty aggressive email from Andrew B. Okay, now Andrew B. is writing from Dublin, Ireland. And he says, I need to share my experience of visiting Portland. A group of my friends and I traveled over to the affable city of Seattle last week to watch the Seahawks opening game versus the Bengals. Now, he sent this email last month. Andrew writes, we were in Seattle for five days and thought we would check out Portland. So we packed our cases and headed to Royal King Station to hop on an Amtrak to Oregon. Unfortunately, the majestic train journey through tall forests was the clear peak of a three-day trip over to Gulliver Country. The people were not friendly or too interested in interaction. They were so caught up in trying to look different and stand out that it felt like a sense of community was missing. As a longtime Celtics fan, it felt like I was in a city full of Kyrie Irvings. Ooh, and you could tell he's sending this email to just break my heart. <laughs> the, Port- the Portland residents were so caught up in trying to be unique and haul some limelight for themselves that they were not acting in the greater good of the city, and it left a stale taste in the mouths of us tourists. Further, the streets were dirty, and the city was so spread out, we had to Uber up and back over bridges all day to try to see anything. Ben has pushed a pro-America message all summer long, and for the most part, I agree. While the country gets a bad rap internationally, it's still full of beauty and has so much to see and do. I just think before Ben pushes such a wide message... He should look inward and try to clean up his own city first. Wow. Scorching email from Andrew B., Rob. Brutal. Um, first thing I'd say is I love when the open floor globe kind of believes that I have the power to fix an entire city. Okay. <laughs> it's just nothing makes me laugh harder when I wake up and you know have a little black tea to start my day. And I look out and I just, from my window, and I think, how am I going to fix a million person metropolis today? How am I going to go about doing this? And literally asking you to clean the streets of Portland, essentially. 
Yeah, so a, a couple thoughts here, um, Andrew. I mean, first of all, clearly you're all about accountability. And as captain accountability, I appreciate that. I like you trying to hold me responsible for uh, you know, my home city, my home state, and, and all the experiences within. Unfortunately, what this email reminded me of is a player sort of like Dion Waiters going 0 for 12 and then blaming the coach. Okay, I'm the coach in this analogy, you're Dion Waiters, okay? Because right off the top, when you're telling me that you took a train to Portland and you're Ubering around the city, you just did not plan this trip properly. Now, as Rob knows, I have an extensive list of Oregon and Portland recommendations that I'm glad to email email out to anyone who asks. Clearly, you did not do the proper pre-trip planning to request that email from me. First things first, you got to rent a car. Second thing second, when you go to Portland, you don't just hang out in the city. It's not a real city. If you want to come to America for a city experience, you go to New York, you go to Chicago, there's other cities. Portland's not that kind of a place. You want to see the outdoors. You don't want to just take a train through the beautiful parts. You want to drive yourself out to the beautiful parts, immerse yourself in nature, go see 25 waterfalls in the Columbia Gorge, get some incredible oxygen-infused hikes in, meet some friendly people out there who are definitely going to you know, say hello to you on the hiking trails and not necessarily deal with the city dwellers. Now, in terms of the friendliness of the Oregonians, I will say in general, Oregonians have the reputation. Uh, Oregonians have the reputation of being very friendly. However, Portland does not have a long history as a tourist destination, so they're viewing you as an intruder, not a tourist. They're not super excited about you being there because 20 years ago, people like you didn't think it was cool to go to Portland. So you're kind of a nuisance. Uh, you're in the way, you're making traffic worse with the Ubers and everything else. So I do agree there's a little bit of a provincial uh, uh, sentiment in Portland, and certainly uh, it's not necessarily, at this point, the most welcoming place to outsiders. However, if you can start a genuine conversation with Portlanders, you will be amazed by their kindness, their warmth, and their open-mindedness. Now remember, Portland was weird before Kyrie Irving, it's going to be weird after <laughs> Kyrie Irving, okay? They have the bumper stickers that see, that say, keep Portland weird. That will never change. It doesn't matter how many people from California move to Oregon and Portland. It's still going to have that essence. That's on you to adapt to your surroundings, Andrew. That's not on uh, Portland to dress up and put on, uh, you know, a collared shirt to welcome you to, uh, you know, their living room, okay? So that's a little bit on your own expectations. If you ever go back, make sure you get out to the Oregon coast. It's beautiful. Make sure you get to the Columbia Gorge. It's great. Go up to Mount Hood. It's great. This is an outdoorsy place, okay? You're not going to want to go back and forth across the bridges. Although the bridges are beautiful and very uh, photogenic, that's not why you go to Portland. And I'm sorry you had a bad time. I apologize on behalf of my city, but I do encourage you to look in the mirror. I do think we're kind of leaving a branding opportunity or a merchandising opportunity on the table here. We need like keep Kyrie weird stickers and shirts to start <laughs> shoveling out to the public. Yeah, well, you know, he would probably say, oh, I don't want to be commercialized. You know, <laughs> I, he would probably have a, you know, a little bit of pushback on that. Rob, you visited Portland. You had a fine time, right? Didn't you have a great cup of coffee? Wonderful city. I, I got to say, I, I, I instinctively push back against a lot of these points that Andrew is making. For one, like the sprawl of Portland, and maybe this is just my Dallas showing, you know, someone who grew up in North Texas, but 
doesn't bother me at all. I really love a bridge city, any city that's kind of separated by rivers or bodies of water where you have these kind of twinning elements across them. I think it makes for just a beautiful kind of aesthetic scene and, and nice functional breaks within a city. I'm very much for that. But I mean, ultimately, if if you can't get behind a city that's, again, mid-sized and not like terribly inconvenient, not overpopulated, surrounded by natural wonder, as you so lovingly detailed, that also happens to be one of the best food cities in America. Climate-wise, at least, you know, you deal with the rain, you deal with some of that, but ultimately is a pretty pleasant place to be, not prohibitive by any means. If you can't yeah, get from behind... Ireland anyway, <laughs> right. I mean, come on. <laughs> so a non-unique problem in that case, but I find it a really lovely place to spend some time, and I really, I really like the personality it has. I love that you that you drive around and you don't see any, you know, chain restaurants anywhere. Everything is singular and pretty unique and different. I love that you know the downtown areas are lined with trees, where other cities are just kind of like cement on cement on cement. It's I find it a really beautiful place to stay. Um, if Andrew can't get behind that, then you know, better or more for us, I guess. Yeah, maybe we don't welcome him back. No. Uh, maybe he just stays over there on the other side of the pond. I, you know, I don't know what to say. That was a very passionate stand-up uh, performance by you. I appreciate it. And look, there are some serious problems there right now. I mean, I think the traffic congestion has gotten to kind of a crisis point, and they're trying to figure that out. Homelessness has become a major issue in a lot of Western uh, cities. Uh, Portland is no exception whatsoever, and the, and the city has not handled that very well. Um but I think if you're judging your entire experience uh, based off that, uh, you're missing a lot of the good parts, uh, like Rob mentioned. So, Andrew, now that you've been back home for a while, I hope you've had time to cool down, to reflect, and to maybe give it a shot here uh, again sometime down the road. Uh, and if you want to see great basketball, come to California because we got it all. <laughs> all right. With that, Rob, I think we're going to call it a podcast. Thanks so much for taking us on that deep dive through your Houston Rocket story for Sports Illustrated. I will certainly catch up with you again later this week. For the Open Floor Globe, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts. You can find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm on Instagram, at ben.goliver. Rob's also on Instagram, but he will not plug it. Hey, until later this week, Rob, I will talk to you.